Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're going to be in 2 Samuel tonight, chapter 14. So if you guys want to open there in your Bibles, if you need a Bible tonight to follow along with us, grab the attention of one of the ushers and they'll drop one off to you as they make their way up and down the aisles. So uh, yesterday, we celebrated my youngest child's eighth birthday. Noah turned eight yesterday. And, uh, you know, it's always fun for them, but I, I, we, we got up, we got up early. He came downstairs, and Georgia always has the balloons set up in the card that she made and all this stuff, and she gives him some candy and some different things, and, and so he asks the first thing. He picks up, like, you know, the organic dark chocolate peanut butter cup, like, the, as though, you know, it's dark chocolate and it's organic, so it's, it's okay, you know, it's sanctified. Um, but he said, he said, he said, can I eat this? And she goes, okay, you know, and it's your birthday, you know, the whole thing. And so the, the, the first thing that he ate yesterday morning was a dark chocolate peanut butter cup. Uh, that was his breakfast. And, uh, and I, am, I am certain that he wishes that that could be his breakfast every day, that he could just wake up and eat peanut butter cups and that would be all that he has. Um, but I am a wise parent, uh, and so is my wife. And so he cannot eat dark chocolate peanut butter cups for breakfast every day because he would grow uh, very unhealthy very quickly, you know. Um, but I see some of you smiling in here uh, because your hair is already gray and you are a grandparent. And you think, well, as a, as a grandparent, I can feed my grandkids whatever I want every day and it doesn't matter, you know. And that's true. Now, I say that because sometimes I wish I was a grand pastor, <laughs> and that meant that I could just always give you dark chocolate peanut butter cup messages uh, that every week we could talk about Ephesians 1 and the love of God and how good it is and how we're all going to be in heaven together, kumbaya, and, uh, <laughs> and everything is going to be okay. Um, but I would not be a good pastor. I would be a grand pastor if I did that. So uh, what I know is that God's uh, warnings in his word are as important and as protective as his uh, blessings. And, and both sides are, are necessary that we go through. And so uh, the first half of David's life was a lot like a fairy tale. The second half is a lot like real life. And, uh, and thus we get into some uh, chapters that maybe the message isn't quite as pleasant as other times. But uh, the warnings in God's word are, are sweet to us because they preserve our crown. And that is his interest as our father, as uh, our shepherd, as our leader, is that he lays things out before us in the word that sometimes are not as fun to teach and they're certainly not as pleasant to hear, um, but they're important for us because they preserve us. They keep us, they are like goads in in us. And so uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And uh, tonight, God, again, as we go through David and we see the fallout uh, of his failure, um, it isn't necessarily pleasant, but the warning and the wisdom Wisdom that it imparts to us is certainly uh, sweet to, to us. And so uh, we're in 2 Samuel 14. Let's pray and uh, we're going to get into some of the things that happens. His caution is good. And so, Father, we just come to you tonight again and we, we bow our uh, hearts and our lives and, and we open ourselves to your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you're faithful uh, to deliver these truths to us. And, and we know, Jesus, that there were times you said things that caused the crowds to thin out. It wasn't um, popular. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't what people wanted to hear, uh, but you didn't 
say things people wanted to hear. You said what they needed to hear. And so, Lord, you've brought us tonight. Uh, Lord, I've learned in my life that when you warn me, it, whether I feel I need it or not, it's essential. And so, Lord, I pray that these things would be warnings to us and wisdom for us. So teach us, Lord, and help us. Father, we know that you're faithful and committed, and we want to be the same. So help us to hear you tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The sword, the dagger, the knife, the scalpel, the box cutter, they all have one thing in common, and that is that they divide. They have different purposes and different uses, but they all do essentially the same thing. And when David took the life of another man using an enemy sword, God declared over David's life, he said that the sword will never depart from your house because you did this thing. And just as there are many instruments of division that divide on different levels, so David's house and David's life is being divided on many different levels. Certainly, we see division within David's family. We've seen it already. Last week, we saw the son of David, Absalom, take the life of another of David's sons, Amnon, because Amnon raped his half-sister, Absalom's blood sister, Tamar. And certainly, the sword is present in David's house. We also see division that is beginning to show itself within David's kingdom, uh, within David's administration, and certainly even inside of David himself as he's becoming conflicted uh, in, in his ability to execute judgment and discern properly what needs to be done. And certainly when God says the sword will not depart, Uh, then the sword will not depart and it will work on every level. And sadly, we see it working in David's uh, family, in his heart, and in his life. David is reaping the consequences of division uh, and thus it starts. Let's pick up in verse 37 of chapter 13 so that we can carry the context into chapter 14. It says that Absalom fled. He has killed Amnon, David's uh, other son, David's firstborn son. And so Absalom fled, fearing, of course, uh, David's uh, wrath and also um, the revenge that might come from David's other sons, uh, of whom he has many. And it says that he fled and he went to Telmai, the son of Ahihud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur, that was the place of his father-in-law, and he was there for three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. And so David mourns both for Amnon, who is now dead, and he mourns for Absalom, who is now in exile because of what he did. And David is, uh, in a sense, tormented over this thing that is going on. David feels both compassion towards Absalom and indignation towards Absalom all at the same time. Can any parents in here relate to that? Have you ever felt both compassion and indignation towards one of your kids both at the same time? No, I'm the only one. <laughs> we, I took the day off yesterday and we took 
the family to, um, it's, I think it's part of the Mohonk Preserve. We hiked up near Minnewaska. If you could drive out 55 past New Paltz and you see that sheer uh, cliff rock face, there's a trail that runs along the top of it. It's called the Millbrook Ridge Trail. And uh, I've been there before on my own, and so I wanted to take my family there. And so we went there hiking uh, yesterday. We had everybody, my in-laws were there, and, and so we're up along this ridge. And all the wild blueberries are there, and so the kids were off in the trails, like, harvesting handfuls of wild blueberries and everybody's kind of going their own pace and we're going along and uh you know my son rocky who is going to be 18 very shortly uh very wise very sober-minded uh very skillful intelligent young man um he was with my two youngest sons and they were were, were um you know grazing blueberries and my my um family kind of moved ahead and the two boys were going to catch up the younger boys were going to catch up with their mother and Rocky said to, we didn't know this Rocky said to Riley he said uh, I'll be right back and he headed towards the cliff face and the boys came towards us and so we kept going which is not uncommon for us you know so we go and we hike and we're gone about an hour and Rocky never shows up so we're we're sit we sit and we're still not thinking much of it you know he's harvesting blueberries and Rocky's Rocky you know and whatever I'm not thinking anything of it. You cannot lose Rocky in the woods, period. It's impossible. You can't do it. So we're, we're there, and he's gone, and probably now two hours goes by, and we're coming back, and we're figuring we're going to run into Rocky. We never run into Rocky. And so now it's a little bit like, I know Rocky's not going to be lost in the woods. You know, where's Rocky? You know, and I'm not really that worried yet. You know? But then Riley tells us, and he says, Rocky said he'd be right back. And I'm like, now that's not like Rocky, to say he's going to be right back and then not show up. So I go down in the place where they were grazing, and I kept going all the way to the cliff edge. And when I get to the cliff edge, I see, I didn't tell Georgia this, I see, I see this like rock outcropping there. And, and Rocky and Hosanna have like this thing where they take pictures of themselves on these things. And then, you know, there's like a little thing, like who's going to get closer to the edge, you know? So I see this thing, and I'm going like, oh, my you know, like, how am I going to explain this to his mother? You know, like, this is, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm starting to feel it, you know. And so it, it, I, I come back, I run to the car. It's probably, you know, a little, it's a, it's a ways to see if maybe he's going to meet us there. I call back. They still haven't seen him. Rocky doesn't get lost in the woods. I'm starting to feel it. You know, I'm starting to feel it like, oh, my goodness, like, this is really scary. Like, I'm actually a little bit scared, you know, right now of what could, could be, you know. And, and so then my phone rings, Georgia says, Noah found him. You know, he had been, he, he had bushwhacked and tried to get ahead of us. And, and because we stopped, he got in front and kept going. So he, he was way, way ahead. We turned around and he, you know, long story short, when I saw him, I felt compassion and indignation. At the same time, I, I never was so happy to see my son in all of my life. And I wanted to kill him at the same time. <laughs> and he had done nothing wrong. So I, if you're a parent, you understand what that's like. And that's where David is at in the middle of this thing. Like his son has done something wicked. But now he, David's kind of ready to move past it. He understands Amnon did something horrible it, it, that was worthy of death. Culturally, it would cost him his life to do 
do what he did. Absalom was defending his sister's honor. David can see that. But at the same time, he's lost one of his sons and he has the pressure of all the rest of the family that hasn't forgiven Absalom so readily. And so David is in this place where he doesn't know what to do and it is, it is affecting every other part of his life, every other part of the administration. Now, Joab who is essentially David's right hand, he sees this conflict going on inside of David and he realizes that something needs to be done about this, that we cannot let the king continue on in this confusion. We've got to resolve this thing. And so Joab kind of takes things into his own hands now. And that's where we pick up in chapter 14, verse one. It says that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and he fetched from there a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign yourself to be a mourner, pretend, and put on mourning apparel and anoint not yourself with oil. Don't put on any perfume, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And so he's kind of got this whole thing scripted. He hires this woman who is wise. She's not an actor. She actually has a bit of wisdom. She's subtle. He knows that she'll be able to uh, get through to David. And so when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, help, O king. And the king said unto her, what aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead. And your handmaid had two sons, and they strove together. They were fighting out in the field, and there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against your handmaid. And they said, deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. Okay, now I'm certain that this is striking a chord with David. He understands the feeling, the heartstrings of his compassion towards this woman are being pulled as he hears this story and he understands both sides of it. He understands where this woman is coming from because she is very much in his position and he understands where the family of this woman is coming from because his family is in their same similar position. It was culturally, it was called the law of the avenger that if somebody killed someone in your family, it was the duty, the honor duty of the other members of the family to take the life of the one who did the murdering. And so the rest of this woman's family, they want to kill the remaining son that is guilty that this woman has. And so it says that if we do this, we will destroy the air also, and they will quench my coal, which is left and shall not leave to my husband, neither name nor remainder on the earth. The woman says, I've only got two. One is dead. If they kill the other one, my husband's already dead. My lamp goes out. I've got no air. And so the king said unto the woman, go to your house and I will give charge concerning you. Go home. He says, let me think about this and I'll write out a sentence and you'll find out what my decision is. And so the woman of Tekoa, said unto the king, my lord, O king, the iniquity be on me 
and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. And if there's any transference of guilt, if there's any price or penalty that needs to be paid, if there's anything that, that sentence that, that will satisfy the desire of the rest of the family, then I will pay it. Don't put it on my son, put it on me. And so the king said to her, moved again, whosoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. You can have an appeal right to the throne. You can come right to me and the whole thing. And so she said, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord, your God, that you would not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy anymore, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, she wants an oath before God. He says, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of your son fall to the earth. Okay, so she gets the sentence. She gets the king to speak the words that this young son of hers is going to be spared any penalty of death. Now, that's exactly what she was going for. That was Joab's intention behind bringing this uh, story, this woman, to the king. And so now this wise woman, verse 12, she says, the woman said, let your handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my lord, the king. Can I, can I just say one one, one last thing. I, I, thank you for the, that. Can I just one, one, one last thing? And he says, yeah, sure, you're here already. Say on. And the woman said, why then have you thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king does speak this thing as one which is faulty. You're guilty in that the king does not fetch home his banished. In other words, wait, doesn't this sound a little bit like something that's going on in your family, King, King David? If, if this is the way of God towards me, then why isn't this the way of God towards you? If my guilty son can be restored and forgiven and live, why can't your guilty son be restored and forgiven and live? And in a sense, this is exactly what David needed to hear. Because he's having trouble as the king in directing the rest of his own household to also allow Absalom back in. That's his conflict. And so now she gives him, through his own sentence towards her, permission, in a sense, to forgive and to restore Absalom back into the family graces, back into David's graces to, to send and get him. And then she says one of the most beautiful things in all of the Bible, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible is 2 Samuel 14, verse 14. Listen to this. She says, for we must needs die. And we are as water that spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Neither does God respect any person. He doesn't deal differently with one than with another. Yet does he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. She says, we're only going to live once. We have as much time as we get on this earth and then we will die and we will pass. She says, God deals with one the same way he deals with another. And even God has devised means ways whereby those that have been banished from him may be brought back again, that they're not cast out of his presence indefinitely forever. She says, listen, it is the way of God to redeem, to restore, to build back, to bring people back. That's what he does. Don't you understand that yourself? Okay. Isn't it amazing that God in the person of Jesus Christ 
has devised means whereby a fallen human race that is apart from him from birth because of sin be not expelled from him eternally. But through Jesus, God has made a way, he's made means whereby those that were separated from him through sin can be brought back and restored, redeemed. He's also made way through his son, Jesus, that even those that are saved, who've been separated from God because of something that they've done in their life, that through repentance and confession, they can be again restored and brought back that they be not expelled from him eternally. That's the way of God. And what David is going through right now is something that every single one of us goes through from time to time in our life. And that is this. It is the faulty belief that God's power, God's promises, and God's goodness applies to everyone else, but it doesn't apply to me. Am I the only one that goes through that? Oh, I know he'll do it for you. Sometimes I listen to myself when I'm counseling another person. And, and God will purposefully bring a person that's going through something in front of me and tell me their thing. And he will let me, he will force me to have to hear out of my own mouth counsel I am giving them that I need myself. And yet I have trouble believing it for me. I have no trouble believing it for the person that I'm talking to. Oh, God is going to fix this. He's going to restore. He's going to bring beauty from ashes. He's going he's to the whole thing. And then, and then I leave and God goes, what about you? And I'm like, yeah, well, it's not going to work for me, but, but it'll work for them. You know, I higher standard. I'm a, you know, no, no. Listen, God is not a respecter of persons. And so his word applies universally to every single one of us. There isn't anything that he doesn't, uh, whether, whatever it is, unbelievable uh, truth. Okay, so now, verse 15, the woman confesses. She says, now, therefore, that I am come to speak of this thing unto my Lord, the king. It is because the people have made me afraid and your handmaid said, I will now speak to the king. And it may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaid. For the king will hear and deliver his handmaid out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son together out of the inheritance of God. Then thine handmaid said, the word of, of my Lord, the king shall now be comfortable for as an angel of God. So is my Lord, the king to discern good and bad. Therefore, the Lord, thy God will be with you. She said, you did this for me and God will also be with you. So then the king verse 18 answered and said to the woman, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord, the king now speak. He says, okay, you had an extra word. Now I want one. And the king said, is not the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, as thy soul lives, my Lord, the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has spoken. For your servant, Joab, he bade me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your handmaid. He's like, she's like, you got me. I'm busted. It ain't even true. These clothes aren't my clothes. I usually wear Chanel number nine. I didn't put it on today. All of it. The whole entire thing is scripted. It was Joab. He put me up to it. She says in verse 20, for this cause, to fetch about this form of speech that your servant Joab, uh, ha or has your servant Joab done this thing? And my Lord, you, David, are wise according to the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are in the earth. She said, I'm not even going to try to lie and play this out on you. She says, I know that you already know, but this whole thing was done to get you to say what you said so that you'll do what you know you've got to do. You've got to reconcile with Absalom. You have to bring him back. Okay. 
So, verse 21. The king said unto Joab, Behold now, I have done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and he bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found grace in your sight, my Lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Now this puzzles me because if you've been kind of tracking with us and you followed these characters and come to know them, this isn't really much like Joab. I mean, Joab is kind of a very selfish and ambitious and kind of like ruthless person. And and you kind of like read this and here he's being all humble. He's bowing before David. He's thanking him. He's really grateful just about restoring David's son Absalom back to him. And I kind of read this and I think like, well, what's in this for Absalom? Like, why is he doing this? And and, and the answer, I don't really know because he's not really faithful to David. Like if if he kind of like died right after this, then I would give him props. I'd say, you know, Joab is a changed man. Like he really is David's friend and he's faithful and he's looking out for him. But he's not because in a couple of chapters, Joab is gonna revolt against David with another one of David's sons, you know? And so what's in it for him? I don't know. I I don't know if maybe he just wants the stability of the kingdom back. He wants David to lead and and, and there's something in it for him. I don't know exactly what it is, uh, the whole thing, but we see Joab in, in the thing. So Joab arose and he went to Geshur and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him. So now David brings Absalom back, but he gives this limitation. He says, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Okay, now this is unbelievable because you see this, this, this division within David's heart. It told us back in verse one that his heart longed for Absalom that he's got this thing he mourns for him every day, wants Absalom back, his heart longed for him. Now he finally brings him back, but he says, but I can't, I can't look at him. He, he can come to Jerusalem, like bring him back from Gesher, but I don't want to see him. I, I can't handle it. I'm not ready for that. I mean, talk about parenting. It's hard. You know, th- those people that like would say that parenting is easy. Do you ever notice that people that write books about parenting are, are young parents? You know, no old parents ever write books about parenting. If they do, it's like one page, you know, and it basically says, good luck. You know, see if you can figure this out, you know, because, you know, sometimes I, I even find myself, I'm in this place where, where like, like I have two kids, right? And I can't be, I can't be your dad and your dad at the same time. You know, there's a, there's a problem here. There's a conflict. And that's kind of what's going on with David. He's got all these other kids that hate Absalom. And then he's got Absalom and he loves Absalom and he can't love Absalom and not get on the wrong side of all the other kids that are angry at Absalom. And he can't stay on the right side of all of them and please and be with Absalom. And so he's kind of in this place where he's like, I don't know how to be a dad right now. And I know exactly what that's like (laughs) to be in that place. I, I can't be your dad and their dad at the exact same time. And that is tricky, isn't it? You know, uh, when, when there's conflict in a relationship, I cannot be your loving wife and the one who balances the budget in this household right now. I can't be both of those things. There's a conflict in this thing. I can't be both your friend and your boss. 
It's impossible for me to be both of those things right now. And, and that's tricky. Relationships are tricky. And, and one of the trickiest things about relationships is this thing called orbiting. You know, the earth and the sun have a relationship and it's a very healthy relationship as long as it stays separated by 93 million miles, right? If the earth tries to get any closer to the sun, excuse me, (coughs) it will burn up. And if the earth gets any further from the sun, it will freeze up. It has to stay 93 million miles away in order for things to stay healthy. And there's this thing in relationships where it's sometimes it's hard, but necessary to find the right distance that you can have with a person in order that you can maintain a healthy relationship. If they get closer than that, it's not going to be good. If they're further from that, the whole thing freezes out and it just dies. And figuring that out is hard, especially within a family. And David is stuck in this thing right now because he can't maintain the relationships on both sides because of this thing that Absalom has done. And so he's stuck. He's in this whole place, okay? Now, for me, I think that one of the hardest things that I go through is not knowing how to parent in certain situations, okay? In, in one season of my kid's life, I'm a rock star. I do really good because I, I feel like I know how to do it. But then another season of their life comes where I feel completely clueless and I don't know how to parent them at all. I feel completely lost. You know, I I see my kids going through something and I don't know what it is. I don't know how to speak to it. I don't know how to address it. I don't know how to extract from them what it is that I think might be going on. And I don't know how to help. I don't know what they need. It's not in my wheelhouse to give them what they need. And so here's what I've learned about parenting in a season or a situation when you don't know how to parent. Let's move on. (laughs) No, no. Here's what I've learned. Have mercy on your parents, kids. That's all I can say. Have mercy on us because we're trying. We have your best interest in mind. You might be an adult parent in here. Have mercy on your parents. The things that they, the the places that they lacked, they want to help. They're trying. I promise you the worst parent in this room is trying. They just don't know what to do. Here's some things that you can understand though and know. Number one is that your kids are not yours. They're his. Okay, they were made by God, they were made for God, and at some point there's a transition and a place of handing off where they are no longer yours, but they are his. And what he's doing in them is very different than what he's doing in you. And if you try to mold them after the way you've been molded, you're going to mess them up. And so they have to be his. Number two is that your kids will reap what you sow. That's a law of God. You cannot get around it. Your kids will reap what you sow, both the bad and the good. Okay, so let that be an encouragement to you that what you do in secret and what you do in their sight matters. It makes a difference. And also understand that the opportunities you have when they're young to sow truth in their life, that is also going to turn around and bring forth good fruit when they are old. But there is a middle space when they shoot out of the cannon that you lose them for a little while. It's kind of like you ever like turn on like a, like a map gas torch or something like that. 
And, and when, you fir- when you turn it on, the gas is shooting out of the nozzle, but you don't see the flame for a space. It looks like there's nothing happening in that. You lose your kids in there, and you don't know what's going to happen to them because they have to, they have to become their own, right? And, and you have to let go and just wait and see. So what, you, what, you, uh, what they reap, or they will reap what you sow. And then finally, number three, is just keep it triangular. Keep God in the picture all the time. Like, God, how do I parent in this season? How do I give them what they need? Lord, if I can't meet the need, you meet the need. Work them through this. Help them through it. If I need insight, give me insight. And just keep God in it. Keep it triangular uh, with God. Well, we, we don't know um, what happens in this exchange uh, that, that, uh, that's going to happen. But watch this. It says in verse 25, it says, In all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, for it was at every year's end that he cut it, because the hair was heavy on him, therefore he cut it, and he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Okay, so you have this guy, Absalom, and he is like the picture of Adonis in ancient Israel. Like everybody just loves Absalom. He's on the cover of every single magazine. His social media is through the roof. He's posting on Instagram every day, not even trying, and it's lighting everything up. Everybody loves him. He cuts his hair once a year, and everybody's waiting for it. It's an event for Absalom to cut his hair. It's a measured event in the Bible that a man gets a haircut. (laughs) I mean, this is some guy. Right? We know that his sister was stunningly beautiful. We're about to hear that his daughter is stunningly beautiful. And he has the attention of the people just based upon what he looks like. And so it says that unto Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. He names his daughter after his sister who was shamed. And she was a woman of a fair countenance. She was beautiful. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Now put yourself in Absalom's shoes. Joab had knocked on the door and said, hey, your dad's ready to reconcile. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Absalom is eager for the same thing. He wants a relationship with his father. So he leaves what he's got going in Gesher, which he is a prince. He's the son-in-law to the king of Gesher. And he says, all right, I'm in. He goes back to Jerusalem, moves everything and comes there. And then for two years, he's going, why am I here? Why did David call for me? Why did he send for me? And so Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again, the second time he would not come. So Twice, Absalom leaves voicemails for Joab, and he says, hey, could you call me back? Because I'm confused. And Joab doesn't answer the messages, doesn't reply. And so therefore, verse 30, Absalom says, okay, you're not going to answer my texts. I'll get through. He says, therefore, he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. He said, I think I remember Samson doing this once, and it seemed to get people's attention. Let's try it. So don't, don't try that, by the way. Just keep calling. Don't light people's stuff on fire. That's not going to work out in, in today's world. Although maybe it will. You know? <laughs> then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Job and he says, Haven't you checked your text messages? He said, I sent to you saying, come here that I may send you to the king to say, wherefore am I come from Gesher? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. 
So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. And so this epic reconciliation moment has been built up throughout this whole chapter and then it climaxes and fizzles out in one verse. Absalom comes, he, he does obeisance to the king. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of repentance. It's a, it's a, it's a declaration of honor. And, and David receives it, in a sense, raising the scepter by kissing Absalom. There is some form of restoration in this whole thing. But yet David is still stuck. Even though he, as the king, has the authority to call off the dogs that are barking in the rest of his house, the rest of his family, because of you know, what Absalom did, David doesn't have the teeth himself to silence them probably because of the guilt over his own sin with Bathsheba and how that translated out into the death of Amnon. And so David is conflicted. He can't stir up the courage inside of himself to cause Absalom to be restored. So we don't know exactly what happens in the exchange, but what we do know is that something was triggered in Absalom now. He hears David's voice. He sees David's weakness. He understands that David is not ruling well. And Absalom decides that he's going to take his life and his future into his own hands. And he's done with David. That's basically where Absalom ends up after this exchange. Chapter 15, verse 1. Don't worry, we're only going to go through the first six verses. So uh, don't think, oh no, it's 8 o'clock and we're starting another chapter. But I want to set this up as we're moving forward. It says that it came to pass after this, that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and he stood beside the way or on the side of the road of the gate. The gate is the place where judgment and government happened in the city. It would be like uh, city hall or um, the town court building or the county clerk's office. All of that happened in the gate of the city. Anytime you read that in the Bible. So he sets himself up in the place where the people are gathering for justice. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, Then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city are you? What city are you from? And and he said, the person would reply, your servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. Now that's what Absalom was after now. He was seeking to find out where the people are from. He's classifying or separating the way he treats people based upon whether they are from Judah or from one of the 10 tribes of Israel from one of the other places. Now, Absalom knows that anyone who says they are from Judah, that they are going to be favorable towards David. And so he kind of lets them pass through because he's got no influence with the people that are from Judah. But anytime someone comes from one of the other tribes of Israel that are not from David's tribe, not from the tribe of Judah, well, then Absalom, verse three, said unto him, See, your matters are good and right, but there is no one deputed of the king to hear you. So, oh, I am from Ephraim. And and Absalom would say, really? Well, what what is your cause? Like, what is it that you would, I'm the son of the king. And what is it that you would need from the king? And he would give his thing. And Absalom would say, man, I feel horrible for you. Because, you know, 
What you have is a real case and you really need justice. But David is just, well, he just, he only really cares about the tribe of Judah right now. And there's no one appointed by him to hear such matters from the people of the other tribes. David doesn't really care about anyone else in the other tribes. So it's a real shame because it's just based upon which tribe you're in. But man, well, verse four, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, Absalom said, as he whisked his seven pound hair in the wind and, you know, and said, oh, that I were appointed judge in the land, that every man, every man, I'm, I'm a leader for every man, which has any suit or cause might come to me and I would do him justice. I would be the leader and the champion of the people. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, then he put out his hand and took him and kissed him. So anytime any would come to shake Absalom's hand, he played the perfect politician. He would grab their hand, he would kiss their hand, and he would show them the greatest honor. So he is, he is literally shaking hands and kissing babies right now. He is jockeying, he is politicking, he is setting up for what will be a rebellion against David and an attempted coup to overtake the throne and the government of Israel. Now, we're going to get into that hopefully in its entirety next week as we go through, because I'm not going to spend eight weeks on the next five chapters. We'll try to get it all in because the whole next chunk, all the way up through like chapter 16 or chapter 20, somewhere around there, is, is Absalom's rebellion. This whole episode that happened all the way up, uh, spoiler alert, it kind of results in his death. But watch in verse six, it says, on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so here we see division manifesting in its fourth way, not only in David's sons and in his family, and and not only in David's administration, but now we see it happening, and, and not only within David himself, interpersonally, but now it's happening within the kingdom between Israel and Judah, a division that will find its fulfillment two generations down the line when they actually split. And we see the seeds of that division beginning now as Absalom sows division between the 10 tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah that David uh, is in in this whole thing. And so this is the seeds here really of what will become Absalom's uh, rebellion in the whole thing. And we'll look at it in its entirety. Okay, it ends in much heartache for David. It ends in the loss of Absalom's life. But there are essentially two ingredients in this rebellion that's about to take place. And, and, and David has a part and Absalom has a part. And really David and Absalom play equal parts in what's about to happen within the kingdom. It isn't all Absalom. David has a part, okay? David's fault in this rebellion that's about to happen is that he has become an unapproachable leader. He has become a leader that has no teeth. He's a leader, but he's not leading, okay? The second ingredient is Absalom, and his issue is that he has untethered talent, and he has ungodly ambition, 
Okay, so he has a gift and he has a desire and he has an ability, but he has no place to execute or to serve or to work out that thing that is inside of him. And on top of it, he is also without faith. And so these six verses, which are the seed really of the rebellion that's to come, are pregnant with wisdom for you and I to understand and watch what's going on within us and around us in our own life. David's part is that he's the unapproachable leader. He has at this point more or less gone into autopilot mode. He's going through the motions. He's misplaced his drive. He doesn't have impetus. He hasn't, he stopped advancing. Remember before the Bathsheba thing? It was like every single day, David was moving forward. He was preparing a temple. He was moving the ark in. He was building the worship team. He was adding to the administration. He was equipping the mighty men. He was strengthening the military and the army. He was just moving. There was just drive. It was going. But now it's all dead. And that's why Joab's kind of like, we got to fix this because he's just wandering. There's nothing going on inside of David right now. There's a, a, a Christian business consultant. I, I know that that probably puzzles you. You got to think about that for a minute. Like Christmas business consultant does all the But his name is Les McEwen. And, and he's helped out a lot of uh, organizations, uh, churches, not-for-profits and the whole thing. And, and his story is great. I, I was listening to an interview that he gave on a podcast uh, where he was talking about what he does. And very interesting man. His name's Les McEwen. And he, uh, he basically said that from the time that he was a little child, he had this fascination with, uh, with businesses, with organizations, with systems. He said as a little child, he would walk into a deli and he could tell as a little child if that deli was going to survive or go out of business because he just had this knack, like this understanding. And so he, he kind of like put into words the things that he could see. And the way he, he, he describes it, he says that every single organization, it applies to a family as well as to a business, as to a church or anything else that has order and structure. He says it basically has six phases in its lifespan. And he says, these are what they are. He says, the first one is the startup where it's like, is this really even going to work? And you're just grinding it out and trying to see if something's going to happen. If you're a young family, you know what that's like. If you started a business, you know what that's like. He said the second phase is called fun, and that's when it starts to work. He's like, wow, this is actually happening. It's growing. Things are, things are, are hopping. You know, it's good. There's some money coming in. There's some kids being born. You know, there's a house being built. You know, this is awesome. This is great. He said the third phase is called whitewater, and that's when growth brings complications. You know, now it's gotten a little bigger than maybe one person can manage. There's more kids than there are parents in the house. The church is more than one leader can handle. You know, it's complication. It's whitewater. And so we got, we got to address this. There's something that has to happen now if we're going to keep this thing going. He said the fourth phase is optional. Sometimes some have it, some don't. And he says he calls that one uh, predictable success. He says if you can figure out how to maintain what is happening and keep growing, he says, then, then you'll succeed and you can actually predict that success. It's going to work because you've built systems that are going to handle what you're doing. If you don't do that, or if you keep growing and never change it, or if you go on autopilot, then you go into stage five, which he calls decline, where things just start to wane. Things start to go downhill. And then he said, if that is not corrected, then you go into phase six, which he calls death rattle. And that's when there's nothing left to do, but just wait for the whole thing to fall apart and you just clean up the pieces and maybe, maybe start something over, okay? I say that because what David is going through right now is a serious decline in the structure of his kingdom. 
Okay, he's gone through all the other things. He even succeeded. He was doing so good. But because of the whole issue with Bathsheba and now his family, he's in decline and things are going downhill and it's not working out. He doesn't want to solve problems anymore. He, he doesn't have to because he's the king and he's established. He has stopped listening to the people and their problems. He's too distracted. He doesn't want the problems that come with adding people and adding systems. So he is just on autopilot. I don't want to do this anymore. That's really his mentality. Proverbs 14 verse 4 says this. It says that where no oxen are, the crib is clean. <laughs> meaning that if, if and, and then it goes on to say, but much increases by the strength of an ox. Meaning that if, if you want a clean barn, then don't get any cows and you'll have nothing to show for it. And you'll have a clean barn and it'll be great. You never have to clean anything up. But if you want to actually have some profit, then you got to get some oxen and you got to clean up after them. All right. David has stopped. He's like, I'm no more oxen, no more messes. I'm not doing this any, no more. Just who I've got, what I've got. I'm good. I'm content. I'm happy. That sets the stage for Absalom to say, all right, well, if you're not going to lead, then I'm going to lead. Understand this, dad, mom, business person, whoever you are, Christian, the burden of leadership is universal to those that are called by Christ, and it is something that goes until we are called home. You cannot go on autopilot in any role that you have unless you want to see decline. And when you do that, there will be problems that arise on their own. We must continue. David stops. Absalom's issue, Absalom's part in this rebellion is partially David's fault and that David does not keep him or restore him to a place where he is able to function as a prince. And Absalom is going to function as a prince. Thus, he launches a rebellion. His problem is that he has ungodly ambition. He's an ungodly man. We saw that in the way that he handled Amnon when he killed him. He wouldn't forgive him. He wouldn't talk to him. He just got angry and murdered him. He killed him. That's Absalom's way. He's an ungodly man, okay? And he's impatient and he's without faith. Understand this. God designs every human being with intention and purpose. God has placed things inside of every one of us that we're to work out and allow to grow up and they bear fruit in our lives. Everyone has this. Absalom did and you and I do. God has made us in this way. God's processes in bringing those things forward are intentional, methodical, and also invisible. Meaning that as God is bringing us to the place where he's going to employ what he's placed in us, there's a process of preparation that's got to happen. There is an insightful snapshot in the New Testament, a story that Jesus told that I think helps understand this whole thing and really what Absalom's whole issue is in this. It's the story Jesus told about an ambitious wedding guest. Maybe you've read it. It's in the gospel of Luke. And Jesus essentially said it like this. He said that there was a man who, who, who had a wedding feast. And he said that the people that were bidden to the wedding feast, they, they spied out and looked for the best seats. They wanted to sit closest to the head table. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to get the, get the biggest portions. They wanted to eat first. And so they kind of looked around and they said, that's where I'm going to sit. And they went and sat in the best seats. But Jesus said, but then the master of the feast came around. 
And he said to the person that was sitting in the best seat, and he said, hey, that seat's not for you. Get up. Your seat's in the back of the room. Go, go sit back over there in the place that you were seated. And then he said that that person has shame because they have been uprooted out of their seat and ushered to a place that was uh, you know, intended for them there at the beginning. And Jesus then applied it by saying, but when you go to a feast, when you are bidden, when you're invited to a party, when you're given a place, take the lowest seat, go to the back of the room and then wait for the master of the feast to usher you and take you to the seat that was prepared for you. Then you will have honor because you are being exalted to the proper position and not humbled being taken down from a position that is not ultimately yours. Now, here's what human beings do. Here's what we do, okay? Whether we, we get saved or we come to at a particular age, okay, then we get saved. And what happens is we come into this whole kingdom, this whole life. We realize we have purpose, meaning we've been made by God for something. And we figure out what's going on in the room. And we see where people are sitting. And we watch what people are doing. And then we think about what we want to do. And we think about what we think is cool. And we say, I really want to sit there. That is a good seat, way up there. We see a gun and a badge and a car and we see authority and a stance and we say, yes, that, 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 that's what I want. That's my seat. That's what, that's what I want. Or we see a man in a sports car with a golf bag and the sun blowing in his hair with the top down. And we say that, that's the seat. That's where I want to sit. That's what I want. That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to position myself to go there. That's where I'm going to sit. Or we see a man with a pulpit and influence and he's honored by people because of the things that he says and does. And we look at that and we say, yeah, influencing lives. That's what we want. That's what we need to do. And so, so we're going to do that. You know, when we position our lives, whoa, she's married to a wealthy man and she doesn't have a lot of responsibility and her hair looks great. That's what I want. I'm going to marry a rich man. That's what I'm going to do. And we aim. We aim for these things and the whole thing. And then we go there. We go in that direction in the whole thing. But then we get there and we sit there. And there was a lot of things about that position sitting in that seat that we didn't consider. We didn't think about. What is it like to sit there? What does it require of me to sit here? Who are the other people that are sitting at my table? Do I even like them and want to be around them? Is it in me to fulfill the role that this seat requires? There was a lot of things I didn't consider about this seat before I spent my whole life aiming towards sitting in it. And now here I am and I hate it. Have any of you ever been invited to a wedding and you've been sat at a table that you don't belong at? You're going like, why am I here? These people, like, they don't know me at all. Like, it's awful. Like, I'm right next to the speaker, and it's right in my, I don't even like music, and now I can't talk, I can't hear, and, you know, the whole thing. It's an awful place to be. How many have ever sat in a seat in your life that you weren't made for? And you thought you'd like it, but then you sat in it, and you hated it. That's exactly what Absalom is doing. He's saying, look, I want that seat. That's the seat I want to sit in. But he wasn't made for that seat. All right? So, so, okay, for you and I, what is the proper response then? 
we come into this thing. God says, I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. I've got a call. I've put talents in you. I've got a place. Here's what it is. You walk into the banquet hall. You say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you all the days of my life. My heart is yours. Fill me with your spirit. I want to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Do your will in my life. And he says, I've got a place for you. Here's what you do. You say, Lord, thank you for the invitation into your kingdom, into your banquet. Would you please lead me to the seat and the table that you have prepared for me? And his response to you will be, yes. Thank you for asking. Let's go. Then understand it may take a couple of years to get there because it's a very large banquet hall. And there may be some seats you need to pass by and some tables that you need to taste from and some things that you need to experience to understand why he's sitting you where he ultimately sits you. But for you to say, no thanks, Lord, I want to sit over there is a major error because you will come to the place where you will say, I wasn't made for this. I don't even want to sit here. I don't even like this. How did I get here? And then you'll say, Lord, could you take me to the seat that you ultimately prepared for me in the beginning? Do it now. That's what Absalom failed to do. And it's going to cost him his very life. Listen, he has prepared a seat for every single one of us. Okay, last thought and then we're done. The same sword that divided David's family, kingdom, internal self, and everything else that's about to be divided in David's life, that same sword that divided is also the sword that is teaching you and I priceless wisdom tonight. And understand that the sword that David endured has afforded for you and me an unbelievable amount of wisdom and the saving of much heartache because of it. And God is faithful to do that with every mistake, everything that we do, every sword that comes into our life, God will use it as a word of caution, of warning and of wisdom for everyone else. So may God give us wisdom. May we heed what we're seeing take place in David's life. And may we not fall into the same error. And so, Father, we pray tonight, Lord, as we have looked into your word and as we hear your truth and as we receive your admonition and your instruction, Father, I pray that we not go the way of David, whether by iniquity or by weakness or by weariness in no longer wanting to lead or to take our place. We thank you, Lord, that you know us so well, that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And we would pray tonight, God, that in your shepherding wisdom and in your fathering love, that you would take us by the hand and that you would lead us, Lord, to that ultimate place that you're taking us, the seat at a table in your banquet hall, the place we belong, with the people we understand, in the position we're equipped for, by the power of your Holy Spirit and in honor of your person. Oh Lord, would you please be the Lord of our lives in every way? And may we heed, Lord, your loving instruction tonight. So help us, Lord, in every way that we need. And for anyone that may be here tonight, Lord, that's tasting your word, that doesn't fully understand or comprehend this love, may they understand the truth that you are the God that has devised means whereby your banished are not expelled from you eternally. 
And Lord, through Jesus Christ, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but receive everlasting life. Would you extend that mercy tonight, Lord? Would each of us sense your loving kindness in our lives? We thank you for who you are. So take this word, oh God. Lift our hearts. Move us in your will and plan. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.